can't revise for English? Yes, you can. And Mark Roberts shows you how. Welcome to episode three of You Can't Revise for English. Yes, you can. And Mark Roberts shows you how. Um, we've got another belter of a guest lined up. Uh, we're going to be talking a Christmas carol. Uh, Mark, how have you been? Good, thank you. Very excited again about tonight's episode. Really looking forward to discussing this uh, seminal text. Yeah, and uh, we'd like to thank everybody at this point for all their lovely positives about the episodes that have gone out. Uh, if you've missed them, you can catch them, go to Spotify and find it and do all those usual things. But tonight we're talking Christmas Carol. Um, do you want to introduce our guest, Mark? Yeah, delighted um, to welcome for this episode Chris Curtis. And uh, Chris, has, as well as being an English teacher and editor of English, uh, is a prolific blogger who's been an inspiration to a generation of English teachers. And as well as that, he's the author of a, a really significant... Um, um, book for, for English teachers called How to Teach English and if you haven't got a copy of that I strongly recommend uh, getting your hand on a copy of that. It's a brilliant guide to all aspects of teaching the subject. Superb. Welcome Chris. Thank you. Hello. We always like to start Chris with a, a little chat just about reading generally. That's our job as English teachers isn't it to promote reading. So what was the book that sort of got you in love with literature? If, if, a, if a kid comes to you and says, oh, um, what, what book should I go and read, sir? What do you send them towards? Oh, it's a tricky question, that one, isn't it? Because I think every English teacher's got a kind of a, a classic that they go for. But I think for me... Um, it, it's a mixture of different things because um, I didn't have that love that was one book alone. I think it was a series of books, really, that kind of built up to a thing. So I, Terence Dix, who used to write uh, Doctor Who books when I was younger, okay, and they were sort of the books that I got into, into the habit of reading. And then it wasn't till my A-levels when I read Hamlet and Jane Eyre and why did Sagasso see really that I kind of really fell in love with literature. But if I was going to recommend a book probably for somebody doing A-level or to get into literature, I'd probably go with Ian Banks's The Wasp Factory, just because it's a, a really powerful, visual, twisting, turning story that is just, it fools you at every corner. And I just think it rewards clever readers. And that's the sort of thing I would sort of go for. So of course, all the classics, yeah, read all those. But I think, you know, that for me is if I was going to try and get somebody to see how powerful, how strong, interesting, and how creative writing can be, then I would go for, for some of that, oh, probably Enduring Love by Amy McEwan. You know, that sort of really, really good story, but also well-written. Ian Banks is a, is a cracking shout. I, I, the Crow Road is one of my favourite books, and it has what I think is the greatest opening line of any book <laughs> ever. Yes. Yeah. Which is, which is, it was the day my grandmother exploded. I mean, you're reading on after that, aren't you? That's a hook, isn't it? That's a definite <laughs> hook. Okay, great. Let's um, talk about Christmas Carol then. You've picked a section from... The stave with the ghost of Christmas present to have a close look at, and um, similarly to last episode where where with Stuart Pryke we discussed quite an obscure passage. This feels like a bit of an obscure passage, and I'm I'm curious as to why you feel it, it's worthy of analysis for us on this episode. What is it about this passage that you wanted to get across? 
Well, the story itself, there's lots of big visual moments in the story. And certainly, you know, surrounding the bit that we're going to look at, there are two bits um, that are quite tent poles in the story. So you've got the ignorance and want that are after this episode. And then you've got the bit before, which is the cratchit. So, and actually with a lot of students, what they tend to do is go for the big visual episodes and vignettes that we've got in the story. And they forget the tiny little bit of details. And I think sometimes where Dickens is doing some of his greatest work is with this tiny little bit of details. We know that Dickens was a big key person on sort of making people remember stories and, you know, the big drama about it all. But actually... It's the tiny little bit of details that really work the magic for me. And this little bit here, I think, is quite, quite interesting, quite powerful. And I think most students just skim over it, really. I think most teachers just skim over it as yeah. well. Um, and, and, that's, and that's part of the problem. The first thing I noticed when sort of going back over this passage was that, that opening paragraph of, of description. We're, we're looking from, and now, without a word of warning from the ghost, is the, the, the first sentence of the passage we're looking at. And straight away we're into bleak, desert, moor, monstrous masses of rude stone. Um, what's Dickens trying to portray here? Why do you think he's setting us up with such bleakness, given that he's potentially trying to show the good in Christmas, isn't he? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting thing because when you look at the rest of the story, you look at it in terms of Scrooge and every vignette is always about a connection to Scrooge in some way. And in this way, we've got these small little vignettes of characters, the miners on the lighthouse and the, the boat itself. You know, these are small little vignettes, but actually I think they tell us a big story about what's really going on in, in Scrooge and about society and, and big difference. And I think when you look at this scene in particular, you notice that the weather the weather is the striking thing about it. You know, the way that it later on talks about the thunder and the crashing of the waves. And you get in a real sense of this visual world that we've got. And for me, I kind of feel that, you know, when you look at the whole story, weather's there all the time. Um, and, but we start with the fogginess. And I think for me, Dickens is using the weather to reflect, in a way, I think, society and the problem with society I mean you can see how it links into Scrooge how there's that sense of that fogginess and a lack of clarity but I also think you know the 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 England that we see at the beginning is a broken world it's not clear things aren't um, straightforward and then right at the end of the story we have sunshine glorious sunshine and I think what we're seeing here particularly this bit is I think the weather reflecting how society is broken and I also think that really when you look at sort of Shakespeare um, and you look at the structure of a Shakespeare play, you look at it starts with at some point, usually before the story, that there was order. And then there's a sense of disorder in the world through the story. And then right at the end of the story, we get that sense of order reestablished. And I think what we're seeing is Dickens is showing us a world that's in disarray. And I think the weather is showing us that in particular. And I think, you know, notice how it, the end it becomes sunny and it's all clear and all nice but I also think there's something more going on there in terms about social class as well. Mark um, I've seen you on Twitter have debates with people about pathetic fallacy as a term I wonder if this is a good opportunity to just maybe briefly have that debate is this pathetic fallacy? question yeah pathetic fallacy is something that i think is is much misused um not just by students i think a lot of 
English teachers have taken it and, and anything that, that has kind of gloomy weather suddenly seems to be used as pathetic fallacy therefore means that it's kind of like the gloomy weather reflects the emotions and it, it's a bit more precise than that in its original usage um, and it's a term that, that's specifically related to the personification uh, of the weather and I think for that reason it's become a term that's been so misused and so corrupted that it's probably best just avoiding it unless you, you know for certain that students are going to grasp that very precise original uses. I think one of the problems with the term as well is that it, it's not a very useful term in terms of kind of getting the analogy, you know, that the idea of prophetic and the idea of fallacy um, linking to personification of, of, um, of the weather is problematic in trying to explain it. So, yeah, I, I tend to try and avoid it altogether, to be honest. I don't know what you think about it, Chris. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, whatever level you're looking at, it's symbolism. You know, mm. you're looking at symbolism primarily, and that symbolism can have an emotional impact on the reader. And I think what we want students at all level is to talk about symbolism, you know, to look for the symbolism and to talk about it. And the problem is, is that, you know, pathetic fallacy just becomes like alliteration. One of those things that students automatically spot, but can't actually explain why it's being used. And so, you know, we've, we've all been there with alliteration, you know, of, you know, wow, explain to me why the poets used alliteration. It's often very, very hard to explain why it's been used. And I think, you know, students at all levels can work at this idea that this is a symbol for something else. And I think, you know, we don't have to necessarily attach it to a character's feelings. It can, can be something else. And I think certainly, in particular here, when we look at the weather, it's not just a direct link into Scrooge. It's actually, you know, we're talking about society. We're talking about the world in which these characters exist in, that there is a problem there. And I think that way we can build in that symbolism rather than just giving students a quick soundbite by talking about that. And that's often what happens. You know, that's why we get cliched responses to it. Yeah, I agree, and it's it's unusual for me, Chris, because I'm usually all about the big terms. Uh, but in this case, in this case, this is one that I'm going to ditch. Although I will try and stick some fancy ones in shortly. Don't worry. <laughs> well, I think it, the problem with the pathetic fallacy is it's always be, it's almost become so misused that it's now accepted to mean what it doesn't mean, yeah. and that that's the problem I have with it. Yeah, and yeah. I I agree with you. I tend to push it to one side. Um, so yeah, symbolism absolutely is is the way to go. Chris, can I invite you to just sort of take us through this this passage a little bit and, and sort of explain what you think Dickens is doing at, at various stages? Because it's typically Dickens in that it's very dense with its uh, description. There's a lot of nice stuff going on with light and dark, and I don't want to take away all your points. So I'm just going to sort of let you let you wax lyrical about what you think is good about this this particular passage or important about it. We'll start off with what I'll talk about is uh, story Dante's um, Inferno from Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, because I think when you look at the structure of this story, very, very different to a lot of other Dickens' stories. And, and if you know the story of uh, Dante's uh, Divine Comedy... Um, you'll know that basically it's taking a character through a journey through um, the afterlife. And so it starts off in hell, takes them through to purgatory, and then meets God in, in terms of the end at heaven. 
And I think this story itself is structured in that way. And I think this particular moment is where you actually see that kind of somebody taking him on the journey through this afterlife itself. All the other things, we've always looked at the structure of A Christmas Carol and we go, well, okay, it starts off with Scrooge, then it's the ghost of the past. And, and we oversimplify the structure in a way. But actually, if you look at the story, you know, it does start off in hellish terms, okay, more very much a Dante's sort of vision of, you know, hell, this idea of this absence of heat. And so this cold, you know, this coldness that we get at the beginning. And then we're seeing here, I would say, the purgatory, the element of people working. Now, obviously, we've got a different view of purgatory when we look at Jacob Marley with the chains that he forged in life. But also we've got this idea of characters working through things. You know, they are physically acting and doing stuff. And then if we look at the story at the end, we've got this kind of like uh, right at the end, we're talking about this uh, heavenly situation. Everything's so nice and cosy. So I think this bit here is where we kind of look at um, that kind of image. Now, if doing a bit of reading around about what does Dickens uh, know about, were there any references about uh, Dante? Um, there's some suggestions that he refers to in Hard Times, a character using some of the language that's associated. Um, but there's no documented evidence as such saying that Dickens goes, oh, I love Dante's Divine Comedy. Um, <laughs> but you, you can see that idea there, that there is a guide. And actually, in, in the story itself, there are three different guides that take them on this journey. So when you look at this story here, it's quite interesting that here we've got three different sets of people and we've got somebody take him on there. And I was trying to think about what kind of story in literature have we got very, very similar to that. And I can't think of one that springs to mind. We're often a character on a journey, but here we've got a very different journey. It's not a beginning, middle and end. We've got this kind of like, we're taking you through a journey of your life and a journey onto sort of fulfillment. To, to betterment. So I think this story, this bit in particular, I think it really draws attention to that because when you look at this idea of what hell is like, you know, we're seeing a physical hell, you know, the way that it's described and the setting and, you know, the, these people in the middle. But I also think that this, this section in particular as well is all important because of class. Because uh, I'd argue that we often look at Christmas Carol and we talk about, oh, it's, it's all about the poor and how things aren't great for the poor in, in the story. But I think you ask yourself the question, who are the, the poor characters in the story? And, and are they painted favourably? And when you look at the story itself, um, Cratchits aren't that poor, if we think about it. They are generally perceived, we could view them as middle class, OK, um, if we look at, for example, what would we expect poor, a poor family to be like? Well, actually, it sounds like the Cratchit family have got a bit more than most people. And if you read things like uh, Jack London's The People of Abyss, you can see how tough it was. You know, people were living in one room alone um, and a whole family. And if somebody died, they would the body would be in the exact room. So that doesn't happen. But we also know that he is a clerk. So he would have been educated to some level. And this little bit in the story focuses on manual labour, focuses mm -hmm. on, you know, uh, trade. So you've got miners who are in the 
in the bowels of the earth. Um, then you you know you've got people in the lighthouse, and then you've got people on the boat. So you you've got that element in the story, and uh, and so it's quite interesting when you look at the other poor characters. You know, because we often have this idea that Dickens is all about um, the poor, and let's feel sorry for the poor, and let's humanize the poor. But do the, does he do this in this bit here? Well, he doesn't even give them names in this section here. He, he refers to them as man, woman, uh, children, old man, elder. You know, this is, there's very, very little character here. These are just ciphers. These are just characters. And then when you look at the other poor characters in the story, they're generally not very positive in the way that they're presented. Um, and I kind of got a theory behind that, is that um, I was reading a book the other day that was suggesting that, you know, Dickens himself, it, it was the fear of losing social position that was the issue. Um, and that going back to Dickens' own past, you know, the fact that we know that he was ended up in a blacking factory, we know all that history about that, and, and the frustration that he had at being educated yet working in a factory. And so if we look at the Cratchits, another way to look at this story could be that, you know, this isn't about the Cratchits being poor, but actually them losing their social status. And that's why there's that emphasis about the clothes. And, they, you know, they make, take such pride. Is it Peter? I think it's Peter that's, you know, makes having his dad's clothes Collar, and this shirt. Yeah. yeah and, this, and that sense of, I'm actually a man, there's status there. <laughs> Um, and I think that's what's at stake with the Cratchits. Yes, obviously, we've got Tiny Tim and we've got that element in there, but we've got somebody who possibly can't keep his social status. And so when we look at that, we can see it with other stories. For example, you know, if we look at Great Expectations, we can see how that story is about going from low status to improving in status, um, you know, and then we see things like Oliver Twist. And I think Oliver Twist is a great book to read, certainly for students um, when writing about Christmas Carol, because I think um, Oliver Twist predates Christmas Carol. But I think they're quite interesting in the way that they bounce off each other. I've said this before with Romeo and Juliet and Midsummer Night's Dream, that they're two stories that bounce off each other. But it's interesting that Oliver Twist... Um, starts from a story where you've got, you think supposedly that this is a poor boy and you're seeing what a poor boy um, has to deal with in life. And then right at the end of the story, you kind of discover that he's not really a poor boy, just circumstances. He's from originally from a rich family. And so, you know, we, we have this idea that, you know, this brilliant Dickens was thinking about the poor and he was really, really caring about the poor and he wanted to make a statement but, but look at Christmas Carol and, and, and think about it. Is it really so much about them? Because, you know, he doesn't really give them a voice. OK, um, I'm trying to think of poor characters in the story that are presented in that way. And I'm, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about the, the scene where they're selling off Scrooge's stuff and all those characters are quite dislikable. Is that not, though, and this is a genuine question, I'm not disagreeing with you, but is that not uh, a question of Dickens presenting the class system has broken. So those people have no way to better themselves and become, for want of a better word, nicer. Um, does that make sense as a question? Yeah. I mean, when you look at the whole story and you look at that, I mean, where's the element of hope 
for the poor in society. Where's where's that glee yeah. and sparkle? You know, Dickens is when you look at how he describes characters. You know, he's very very. You know, I think somebody described him as kind of like a. Uh, a young child looking at the world in terms of ogres and and uh, and the opposite, you know. And when we look at it, you know, the good characters are beautiful and sparkling and twinkling. And then when you look at the other characters, you know, they are ugly, repulsive, disgusting, you know. And 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 as much as we kind of sort of say, I mean, I'd argue that when you look at the way that other poor characters, apart from these ones, are presented, you know, the, even when we're talking about the mayor. And straight after talking about the mayor, we're talking about um, that he finds somebody for being drunk. And then, you know, and this idea that, you know, the poor are drunk. And then you've got, I think it's Caroline later on in the story, who, you know, who's happy that Scrooge is dead. You know, who is joyous at Scrooge dying? You know, that that isn't presenting this lovely, cosy view of what we think it is saying about the poor. And I think it's a, I think it's an interesting way. I'm, I'm throwing it out as a question there because, but I think I'd say that yes, this little bit here does show us that positive nature. This is the bit that's positive about the poor, but it doesn't give them a, doesn't give them a name. <laughs> you know, it doesn't give them a backstory. And, and is it just a case that the poor are just a vehicle in this story for the message rather than humanizing the poor? I think that's a fair comment. I mean, one thing that he does do here, he gives them company, doesn't he? he? He gives them companions. And if you if you look at the the bit that stuck out to me, the the description of the lighthouse, this lighthouse is a solitary lighthouse. You can't help but make that leap back to Scrooge, can you? The the solitary oyster, um, and the fact that throughout this passage, these people are geographically isolated they're they're in these places you know the bowels of the earth they're they're kind of um victims of the weather and kind of um vulnerable to the elements and yet they've got this real sense of togetherness even the couple um that are there that the two men who are in the lighthouse they've got each other and they've, they've got this kind of human companionship uh in the bleakest of circumstances then they're singing it's joyful it's happy isn't it there's this real sense of celebration and okay it might just be temporary it might just be this one day of respite from the the kind of horrors of hard labor um but there's something about it that, that's beautiful and, and you see that contrast to scrooge who, whilst he's on this journey, been taken with the guides that you talked about, he's still very much alone. He's still very much this solitary figure at this stage. Yeah, I think there's an interesting thing. I think it's the old man. Um, let me just get my copy of the book. Here it is. There's, there's a bit where, with the old man, and it describes him singing. Um, and it's saying it had been a very old song when he was a boy. And from time to time, they all joined in the chorus. And I think this is quite interesting for me because um, we often, talking about foils, we talk about Fezziwig. We kind of talk about Fezziwig. Fezziwig's to show us how Scrooge should be. But I think this little bit here is a bit of a foil for Scrooge as well. Because if you look at it, I mean, it's this idea of remembering something when you were young. Um, and this idea of happiness and the, this idea of looking, going back into the past and pulling back a time where we've got happiness. And I think this is that idea of hope that Scrooge could possibly have because, you know, he's a fairly old man, isn't he? And this idea that we can have. And I think, you know, when we look at this, 
the the whole thing about the song um, and the fact that being a Christmas carol is this idea of that song, that happiness, that unitedness, that connectivity between people. Because that's what's broken with Scrooge at the beginning, isn't it? He's not connected. He's divided from this world. And then right at the end, um, going back, you know, at the end of the story, we've got Scrooge who finds his position in the world and he's got connections to people. And that's what we see with this bit here. And we see it, we see it at threefold, but probably four times as well, because we see it with the Cratchits, um, we see it with these three different vignettes, but also we see it at different points previously before because we see people clearing the streets together, going to get food together. And I think that message there is we've got this idea of uniting, uniting as a society. But look at the end again, OK? Um, Scrooge's social status doesn't change. Nobody's character's social status change. So going back to what I was saying about there, there, there is no change in social status. Scrooge doesn't become equal he stays at the same position. Can I can I take you back to something you, you mentioned earlier about the Dante's Inferno thing and the the some of the language that's used in that first paragraph, since you've said that, has just sort of been leaping out at me. And I'm thinking things like the streak of fiery red, which glared upon the desolation for an instant, like a sullen eye, and this I think is really interesting, and frowning lower, lower, lower yet. Deliberate allusions from Dickens as far as you're concerned? Totally, totally. You know, this is, I mean, I think, you know, that whole idea about being in the bowels of the earth, uh, we know what happens when things are in the bow. They go one way, don't they? You know, if, if we're going to be honest, if that's a powerful image and also a symbol for the whole story itself, you know, this is how society treats the poor. You know, again, as I said, it's not humanizing the poor but i think it's giving a clear message of what what's happened to them you know and i also think you know there's other things going on in this story as well because i think we're also seeing the power of the industrial revolution and urbanization you know i think this isn't just about you know poverty i think it's also about society in general you know the fact that when we look at the past in a christmas carol um i did a level geography so i often try to kind of you know pull a bit of it in there but I also think when you look at the story the past um, you've got the sense that nature is a bit more stronger you know this idea of the school we know it's run down and there are weeds and things like that but you know we see fields we see that pastoral element don't we we see that kind of lovely beautiful sign in the past okay the you know Britain in the present it's foggy at the beginning and um, what have we got outside I'm assuming that this is outside of London look at the world outside of London you know it's stormy it's it's horrible it's the bowels of earth you know we, are we seeing here the impact of the industrial revolution industrial revolution and urbanization you know this is what's happened and we know that because of you know um urbanization that people left from you know the villages and the countryside and moved towards uh, population migration to to the cities you know is this are we seeing the impact here of what's happened and that society has got to change we've got and I think you know the heart of this is about balance you know this isn't about Dick and Sunday go right let's give all our money to the poor it, it is about balance and I think that's certainly what's in the story it's about you know, finding connections with each other 
and finding that equilibrium. You, you mentioned the lower, lower, lower there, James, and I think that repetition is, is fascinating in this particular passage. That bit, bit there, the lower, lower, lower um, example of uh, epizuxis, and that sense of you know consistent repetition, uh, consecutive repetition. And in this case, I think it's about intensity of emotion, in- intensification of this sense of not just the descending into the bowels of the earth, but also this sense of Scrooge being taken lower and lower into himself and into his, his kind of morals and his past and, and, and this sense of that. But he talks also, he uses that, that same type of repetition again with the old, old man. Keeps on going back to this this age, the old is, is repeated several times in that paragraph. And I think you're right, this sense of, of past and legacy and the fact that um, Scrooge has, has managed to accumulate, but he won't have any kind of human legacy. And that's something that, that tends to crop out there as well. That lovely line about the figurehead of a ship. You know, that I think for me, that's such a brilliant image. You know, don't we think we're the figurehead of a ship as teachers? We're the one, we're a bit hardened and sort of thing, but we're directing things, you know, and it's this idea of that these, the elder is, you know, pointing the direction, you know, and that actually it should be, you know, the maturing society, the oldest in society should be guiding, you know, and, and it's really, really interesting that, you know, that's that repetition of the ideas there, you know, is Scrooge a typical, you know, elderly gentleman, you know, is he what we'd expect, you know, is there a problem with age? We Certainly if we look at other stories like Inspector Calls, we can see that there is that issue between, you know, young and old. Is there that element here that actually, you know, look, it is there in society, but not everybody. Is that emphasised by the fact that we've got um, in the mind, we've got four generations described. We've got an old, old man and woman with their children and their children's children and another generation beyond that, all in this horrific place celebrating Christmas for a moment. They see, it seems that he's making a bit of a point there about family and togetherness and that's that sort of thing it's that intergenerational legacy isn't it this sense of of uh, right at the end they they delighted to remember him this this sense the final line there that even though you might not have necessarily achieved much in terms of the status in in this world that chris was referring to you've still achieved this this legacy of passing on um your not just your morals but also passing on your genes um to to future generations who are then going to remember you and look back on you fondly I mean, we could we could even link it into about the the disjointed family, couldn't we? This idea is a modern concept of the idea that the family unit has been disjointed. And if we look at, let's say, where is Grandfather Cratchit in this story? Where are the elder generation for the Cratchits? You know, is is this the problem that we've got with uh, Bob Cratchit? Is that there isn't a suitable uh, grandfather slash father figure? For him, and that's the position that Scrooge has got to to adopt. Now we know that Dickens was very much a family man. He liked to perceive himself as you know this big gregarious character. I mean, is that kind of sort of suggesting that the family unit needs more than just you know mother, father, children, but also the grandparents or grandparent figures? It's what's Fred's seeking as well, though, isn't it? Fred's yeah. seeking a, a father figure, a, a, an older statesman of the family to, to be part of his life. So everybody's craving the same thing apart from Scrooge. Yeah, 
Yeah, definitely. I'm really interested. Um, earlier, Chris, you mentioned um, this this idea about about the journey and 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 the idea of of the guide. And you were saying about thinking back through literature. And when I was reading this particular chapter, um, it really got me thinking about um, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight uh, and and that kind of classic quest tale. And just like the Ghost of Christmas Present, that is kind of this personification of Christmas and this kind of uh, jovial type figure, um, but it's also someone who's incredibly blunt. I mean, the the, the Green Knight ends up being the the, the decapitator, and and is someone who's who kind of um, full of um, festive cheer and so on. But in the end, as you know, just as cutting as the the ghost is going to turn out to be with, with Scrooge, and I, I just couldn't help but see parallels there uh, with it. So I, I just wondered if that was something that you you thought would fit with this. Yeah, certainly. I mean, I certainly think you know this whole idea. I mean, this bit in particular, I think, is really dark. I think this is that you know when we talk about the the shift in sort of the narrative pattern, I I, I think this is where it gets darker. And, and I would say it gets darker and darker from this point on. And there are little bits of that humour every so often, but it becomes dark humour, certainly through the story. Uh, and I think I would always argue that this story, this, you know, Dickens is incredibly cruel. Dickens is incredibly cruel. I, I, I certainly think it, certainly at this point, you know, Scrooge would be quite, yeah, go on, I'm change, I'm going to change a bit. I, you know, I feel a little bit, <laughs> feel a little bit sorry for them. I, he, you know, he does, he overcooks the goose a bit, doesn't yeah. he? I've seen enough. I've seen enough. I'm, I'm, yeah. I've seen the error yeah. of my ways. <laughs> Fair game, Gov. You got me. All right, I need to do it. but I just think this just adds and adds and adds and adds, and I just think this is where I think it's a lot more darker and it's you know relentless in how it is. You know the fact that you know we all know, and I think. You know, stage four for me is horrendous. It's horrendous if you think about it. You know, imagine doing that as a, you know, in life. You know, look, okay, oh, do you know that body over there? That was you. You know, that was just, that, how horrendous. You know those people that were being horrible about somebody? That was you. You know, that whole sort of sense. So I can see that there is a quest, you know, that we've got that quest element to going back to what you're saying, Mark. Um, and, and I think it is a quest for, I mean, what do we define it as a quest for? You know, is it, um, you know, is it about challenges? Because with a quest story, you'd have a number of uh, obstacles along the way. And, you know, and what the goal is. I mean, I don't know how I'd fit it into that whole mm. sort of quest analogy in terms of things. You know, is it a quest for his soul? You know, or is it just, it? it's more... Li- an internal, isn't it? Yeah. An internal, yeah. an internal conflict, and these internal yeah. barriers that the character has to come across. Those obstacles are kind of breaking down his his sense of ego and and his sense of um, belief about his previous self, isn't it? That that kind of having. And you're right; he really has his nose rubbed in it. Um, there, there's no escape. And when you talked about the relentlessness of of, of what he is ordeal and what he has to face up to, I think that's that's replicated in the the repetition in this extract, where there's a couple of bits where it, you know go on and on, not to the sea, to the sea, and, yeah. and this real sense of uh, it's it's like a hammer blow of you will see this you will continue and you will endure everything that you've kind of brought into this world you're gonna to have to face up to it ad nauseum definitely yes gents that's 
fabulous. We could genuinely, I feel, go on all night and, and talk about this. I think there's, there's so much good stuff coming out of this, but we are getting on a little bit with time. Um, so at this point, I'm going to say a huge thank you to Chris for your, your, your contribution. I think um, this is going to be a really useful listen, um, as as all the episodes have been so far, but uh, this this was great. Thanks, um, thank you. Mark. Uh, Mark, what's your... What's your revision tip this week? I'm going to get very practical um, in this episode, and I just want to go back to talking about flashcards, which I know are, are increasingly a very popular form of, of revision uh, to memorise quotes and, and other important um, knowledge uh, that students need to have for, for literature texts. Uh, and I just want to say something about it's really important that students make sure that when they're using their flashcards, they don't cheat themselves. It's a really tempting thing to ask yourself the question and then flip it over. And it's absolutely vital that you give yourself a really good pause before you flip over and confirm whether you've got it right or wrong. So that might seem like something that's just a bit of a throwaway piece of advice, but it really can make all the difference between whether you store it in your long-term memory or not. So make sure you pause before you flip. I think that's really that's a really good. Otherwise, you're just reading, aren't you? Absolutely. You're just reading, and that's no good for anybody. Um, okay, marvelous, uh, Chris. Once again, a huge thank you for your time. Many thanks, um, Chris. Hopefully, it's been useful. Thank you. And ho- hopefully, we'll uh, we'll have you back at some point for another episode. It'd be good. It's been good fun. Thank you. And thank you as always, Mark. Uh, thank you for listening. Thanks very much, and we'll see you again. You can't revise for English. Yes, you can. And Mark Roberts shows you how.